I have been captivated by the public faith and ministry of Fred Rogers over the last couple of years as the documentary Won't You Be My Neighbor came out and then the based off of his life film uh, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood starring Tom Hanks came out last year. All are showing how Fred Rogers used his show. Of course, he's famous for creating and starring in Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. How he used that television show to be a ministry of the church. He was a Presbyterian ordained minister, and he saw his calling as using the medium of television to shape people into the image of Jesus. And so he always thought, like, why aren't Christians utilizing this great resource that's shaping of people? Why don't we use it to shape uh, uh, people with spiritual formation? And so when he uh, had the opportunity to create a show, he creates a children's program in which he regularly is communicating the ideas that people are valuable and loved just the way they are. He not only did this on air through the messaging, but he would also do this by the way that he would treat people who would, would come through kids as he would meet them, uh, kids who would come and guest star on the show. Uh, the fictional version, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, shows Fred Rogers doing something he was rumored to do or uh, several times uh, or almost every day, I guess, uh, on the set in which he would bring in a child, oftentimes children who were mentally impaired or, or had some level of, of just a, a reason to feel discarded or unloved the way that they were. And he would spend time with them, tons of non-agendaed time. In fact, to the frustration of his directors and producers, they would regularly run the filming of the episodes late because of the time that he would spend with these children communicating with his presence that he saw them and he cared about them. In the film, the fictional version, uh, Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, you see Fred Rogers sitting with a boy on set who has a sword, a plastic sword, and a breathing apparatus. And the boy is continually hitting people with the sword and seemingly just not responsive to even... Uh, Fred Rogers' persistent attempts to communicate with them, and, and the parents are apologetic, and the director says that they are, you know, uh, over an hour past uh, uh, off schedule because of this. But he just continues to sit there and and look at him and talk with him, and eventually see the boy start to respond more and start to f- respond to the love that he's experiencing by just being seen by Mr. Rogers. And Fred Rogers won the Lifetime Achievement Emmy in 1997. And there, during his speech, he voices a question that he voiced several times on on television and in person throughout his career, in which he asked this entire, this packed crowd, an audience of celebrities to think of the people who had loved them into being, or sometimes he'd phrase it, who'd loved them into loving. And he says, literally, take 10 seconds. And you see the whole crowd kind of slowly realize, oh, he means this. And so they start thinking. Because Fred Rogers knew something that I have experienced in life, which is you are only created to love by someone else loving you first. This in some ways is intuitive to us. I mean, we know when we think about the most influential people in our lives, we think of parents or coaches or mentors or teachers uh, that seem to give us 
a, an extra special uh, dose of attention or focus or encouragement. And, and those are the ones who we know, like they shaped us a bit of who we are, maybe shaped us profoundly into who we are. But but there's even another level that it's it's hard to describe in, unless it's been experienced in which somebody loving you in a way that is completely sacrificial, in a way that is shows a completely uh, non-thinking of that person's self and focus on you. And when you realize and fully understand the depths of sacrifice a person has loved you, you become unable to just internalize that and sit still with it. It enters into you and it has to explode out. It has to be passed on to other people. There is this real live concept of being loved into loving. The more that you are loved by others, the more that you feel not maybe you could describe it as an obligation, but it's more joyful than that. A joyful obligation to give people the experience of love that you have received. Paul wants Christians to see that in the relationship to Christ, and he writes about that in Philippians 2. You see this, uh, I'll start at the beginning of the chapter. He says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And, and so even in that first portion, you see Paul saying, hey, if you've had any encouragement from being in Christ, any, any comfort from his love, like consider the depth of sacrifice that he has given, and that and be shaped by that so that you love, you are loved by Christ into loving like Christ. I mean, he's starts talking about uh, Christ in this very poetic way. And it's actually, you see it in the text broken up like a poem because it, it was likely a, an apostolic hymn. The apostles would write hymns so that people could have basically a way to interact with scriptural truths before scripture, before you would have, uh, I mean, these letters, of course, you know, they did not necessarily know they would become scripture, but even at that point, they didn't have multiple copies of them. And so they wanted to teach these truths. And so you would teach in an oral culture to song and to poems. And so that when people were going back, performing their daily tasks and working in an agricultural society, these songs could sit with them and they could continue to teach and shape them throughout uh, the time that they uh, it's, were spending living their life. And so this is likely an example of an apostolic hymn. And it tells the idea of Jesus continually 
seeking to make himself the lowest of the low. I mean, it, you see actually in this the reverse pattern of the Corsus Honorum. Corsus Honorum is Latin for the course of honor, and it was this concept in Greek culture of continually moving up the social ladder. And so uh, much like the idea of an American dream, you could start a slave, and if you worked hard, you could become a merchant. If you became worked hard as a merchant, you could potentially you know, become a landowner and become a lord or a lady, and then even potentially become a, a senator. That was the, the chief level of, of uh, the courses honum, uh, or honorum uh, beyond just being born into uh, being a dignitary or being uh, you know, a, a noble. And of course, nobles were even seen or saw themselves as gods. And in this hymn, you actually see the reverse courses honorum, where Jesus is starting at the top and working his way down. He says, Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, starting, starting out as God, you don't work your way up if you're Jesus, you just are God. He said he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. So the most worthy person to receive all service and, and comfort and honor is the one who created everyone, who gave everyone life, who gives everyone the goodness of, of just peace and joy and, and the resources to eat and to, uh, and to enjoy their lives. And yet he says, hey, he didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. So he says, hey, he comes from God and he becomes human, not only human, but a servant. It's difficult for us to conceive of Jesus full, being fully God and fully man. We sometimes try to like reconcile it in our mind by saying like, well, maybe he's like 50-50, like he has like God qualities and human qualities. Or I, Honestly, a lot of us probably think of it more like 99% God, like he has all the powers and, and, and omnisciency and, and, you know, the... Uh, understanding of God, but yet 1% man, he's still human, so he can die on the cross. But the Bible always presents that like he becomes fully man. He becomes fully a, a child who has to be potty trained, who has to grow up and grow in understanding, as it says in, in the Gospels, that Jesus is growing in understanding, that he truly doesn't have this omniscient sense. It says he empties himself of that. Uh, and and I know like you see Jesus a lot of times in the Gospels asking questions. Hey, how long has she been like this? He does things where he doesn't know the answer. They say they ask him like, hey, what you know, when is the day and the time that that the end of this era and this age is going to come? And he's like, hey, only the Father knows that. Like I, I don't I don't know these things. And sometimes we like to describe it away as like, well, Jesus really knows the answer to the question. He's just asking so that you can know, or the person can know, or, or, you know, and we get really confused in trying to describe how he says he doesn't under know some things, but what about the reality that there's nothing in the text that says he actually knows the answers to the questions he's asking, that he actually becomes a human, and he becomes one who has to grow in understanding, he has to read scriptures, and, and, and so that's why I think you see Jesus's baptism the clouds part and and the spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove. And then the voice of God says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. And I don't think this was like this wink, wink, nudge, nudge moment of like, well, Jesus and God both knew this was happening, but now he's declaring this to the world. I think this is the first time that Jesus knows, 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 knows. 
that this is actually all that he's been reading about in Isaiah and feeling a special connection to and 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 thinking these prophecies just seem to give him a a a, a feeling of weight in his soul is because he is the Messiah. And at the same time, he is still 100% God. And how that works has intentionally been put out there, I think, by God to just baffle the minds of of scholars and lay thinkers alike. And so he becomes fully God, or he, he is fully God and becomes fully man. And not just any man, but he takes on the nature of a servant, one who comes and, and doesn't live in a palace, but lives, it says he doesn't have a place to lie his head, he doesn't have a home. He is regularly taking up the towel to wash the feet, like he, you see in, in John 13, uh, of his disciples, something that you would never see a rabbi doing. And being found in the appearance of a man, he said he humbled himself by being obedient to death. So he's not just becoming down to humanity, not just coming down to the bottom of humanity as a slave, but he's being obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's like the last level of going down, because at this point in an honor-shame culture, the most shameful thing to do is to be publicly uh, executed on a cross because it was just putting a person up on a banner to say this person is is unworthy, is uh, is undig- is indignified, is uh, is is scorned and shamed. And uh, so not only was it the chief way to inflict pain, it was also the chief way to inflict shame upon uh, a person's name and their family and their standing. And so it says that that this Jesus goes from God to humanity, and not just humanity, but a servant, and not just a servant, but obedient to death, and not just any death, a death on the cross. It's the reverse corsus honorum. But it says, therefore, because of all that, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, and that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, and in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is regularly coming back to this theme that says, hey, if you want honor in my kingdom, if you want to be first in my kingdom, then you're going to make yourself last. You're going to make yourself the servant of all. That that God is going to elevate those who are actively taking a place of humbly serving others and putting other people's needs better uh, above their own, and particularly the least of these, the the making yourself as low as you possibly can is actually elevating your status in the kingdom. It's why someone once told me, said, hey, you want to know how you see who leaders are in the kingdom? Is when people show up at a church, they're the ones who not only like come in and, and immediately start serving, they don't come to church to be served, but they come to serve. They also start looking for the least desirable tasks and they fulfill them faithfully. They, they start doing the things that nobody wants to do. It says that is the where you find pastors, elders, deacons, community group leaders, MC leaders, is those who are just regularly seeking to do the least desirable thing because they are exercising leadership in a way that Jesus said, hey, those who are, are looking to be the servant of all are actually the ones who are leaders and, 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 and put in a place where they understand how my kingdom works. It's an upside down pyramid. We always display power in all situations as going up a pyramid, that the, 
the most powerless low class is the base and the bottom, and they're often being crushed by all the weight of everybody else upon them because you have the next class on top of that and the next class on top of that, and then you get smaller and smaller until you get to this just very tip-top one-percenters that are supported by everyone because they have the resources to to either purchase that support or they have the clout and importance to just be given that support. And so often they're the ones with the real power and because they are sometimes disconnected from that bottom class, they are making decisions that is further extorting that bottom class for the sake of their own benefit. And it's true even in our our culture now. We're like, oh, we've made like this democratic republic where we truly have, you know, everyone has the power. It's like, but we, we don't feel that way. I mean, protests are happening across the country. And I've heard it said that protest is the language of people who feel unheard and unpowerful. And and there's a reality that like even in election year, we don't feel like, oh, I, we're, we, I as an individual can change the course of history. A lot of people just feel like, oh, what does it really matter what I think or what I do? There's only a few people that have power, and and I'm not one of them. It doesn't matter how you rework your org chart and your organization so it's like a, a circle or a spiral or you know a, ho- a horizontal line. There's always, when you really get down to it, who has to sacrifice most, who has to, uh, who gets the most benefit. It always breaks down in a pyramid in some way, shape, or form. But Jesus says he in his kingdom flips the pyramid. And so that the ones with the least amount of power would be the most supported by the ones underneath them and the ones underneath them. So that in an org chart of the church and the kingdom, it should look like the least of these being supported by a group that has maybe not a ton of power, but maybe has more resources. And those are supported by people who have even more power and resources than them who are supported by, and as the group gets smaller and smaller, it's actually more and more weight going on a few people who are making themselves the the servants of all. And that doesn't have to be the pastoral team or the deacons. That can be and should be the whole church, that the whole church is seeking to outdo one another in honor, as Paul writes in in another one of his letters. There's a thousand big and little ways to do this. I mean, it can be making meals and bringing them to people who who need encouragement or maybe you're struggling. It it could look like uh, caring for the kids of a mom or a family who's in a difficult time or maybe just in a time that you know would be an encouragement. It could be looking for people on a Sunday or or throughout the week that just look like, hey, they could use me intentionally seeking them out, wanting to get to know them, wanting to listen to them. I mean, just the act of sitting down and actually listening, listening to someone and then caring about what they say and then praying for them. Do you know how few people actually experience that ever? And so just it, this, a lot of this doesn't actually have to be overly complex. Some of it's actually really simple daily stuff of just seeking. I mean, servants a lot of times aren't doing complex tasks. They're just doing the daily tasks and they're seeking to do them for everyone, seeking not to to prop up their own interests, but to prop up the interests of others. And that's just not only seen in the examples of Jesus. I mean, that's where Paul later on in the chapter is going to talk about this example being true and people like Timothy and Epaphroditus. 
when you see at the bottom of the chapter, he starts talking about he wants to send Timothy to him and send Epaphroditus back to them. Epaphroditus is the one who the the Philippians sent with money and resources to care for Paul because he was in prison. And he's like, I want to send him back to you. And it seems like this weird left turn, but really he's you see that he's been saying, hey, look at Jesus and look how he's loved you into loving. He says, look at Timothy and Epaphroditus and, and look how they've loved you into loving. He says, you know, with Timothy, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. He says, yeah, he, he just generally cares about you, thinks about you, prays for you. And then Epaphroditus, he's like, he, he was the one that when you were like, hey, we need to send money to Paul and somebody needs to go on this dangerous 800 mile journey. He raised his hand and said, I'll do it. And not only that, he almost died getting here, but, but that even shows his willingness to lay down his life to, to serve me when I'm in prison and to serve you by bringing me the, the help that, that you couldn't get to me. And so he says, look at these people, look how they are examples uh, of, of being loving and let their love inspire deep portrayals of love towards others and you. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. There's always ways in the church in which you can do things that are loving in a way to build up your ambitions, to build a good, you know, market your product or, or, you know, build your network or, you know, build your platform. I mean, you see this church leadership all the time. I mean, yes, there's some people that write books just because they really, you know, have something to say. But there's a lot of times you write books because you build your platform and you can start speaking. And and yes, maybe they don't benefit off the proceeds. They give all those away because it really wasn't about like the money for them. It was just about them having this important voice and culture in society. And you can do that in small ways, too. You don't just have to be seeking out book deals or speaking engagements. You can be doing it way where you're just like looking to feel important and you want to use the church as a way to do that. And you can serve people for a while, but eventually it'll come to the point where do you actually love serving people for the for the sake of loving others and putting them their needs above yours? Or do you love having a name for yourself? Because eventually it will always, those two things will not always be at odds, but in some seasons they will be. And, and then we, you get to see and it, or reveal maybe what you've always known, which is this isn't about other people. This is about you. And so he says, Hey, don't, don't serve out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather no serve in a way that is sacrificial and and generous. And yes, is sometimes going to be exactly what you want to do. And some days, not so much. You would rather do you, take a break, get some much-needed me time. You need to think about your own resources, your own family. And, and yes, there's sometimes you need to be wise, but, but giving the example of Jesus going to, from the throne rooms of heaven to becoming a slave who dies on a cross doesn't exactly give a picture of like, hey, constantly be making sure that you got everything settled for you and your crew. It's more of the picture of like, hey, even if at times you're being reckless, at times you feel like you're insane the way that you're giving of yourself and that you're giving beyond your resources, that that might be a time where you say like, hey, this is truly what it looks like to be poured out, as Paul says in the chapter, and then be filled by the Spirit.
because Paul says, hey, the more I pour myself out, the more I'm actually filled by the Spirit. So what is something this week, big or small, that you can do that would be a way of making yourself a servant of someone? And it's a time to reflect on not just how you have been loved into loving by Jesus and and by others filled with the Spirit, but also who can you love into loving?